Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. My name is John Wellington Wells. I'm a dealer in magical spells, in blessings and curses and devil-filled purses, in prophecies, witches and bells. If you want a prophet to make tracks, if you'd melt a rich uncle in wax, you've got to look in on the resident gin number 70, Simmeriax. Then if humanity changes organity with an urbanity full of satanity, vexes humanity with an inanity fatal to vanity, driving your foes to the verge of insanity. Barring tautology, in demonology, electrobiology, mystic nosology, spirit philology, high-class astrology, such as histology, isn't the matter of an apology, oh! My name is John Wellington Wells. I'm a dealer in magical spells, in blessings and curses and ever-filled purses, in prophecies, witches and knells. And if anyone anything lacks, you'll find it already in stacks if you'll only look in on the resident gin number 70, Simmeriacs. Listening to episode 126 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about curses. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. All through human history, people have been fascinated by curses. Some suspect that a particular person or thing is cursed, others want to put curses on their enemies and some want to have curses removed from them. Curses even appear in the Bible. So what are curses? How do they work? And how worried about them should we be? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patron request episode. Yes, a couple of our higher level patrons, Bill and Joe Martell, contribute at the level where they get to pick a topic, and they wanted to hear about curses. So that's what we're talking about today. Excellent. Now, I have to ask, where did the opening sound clip come from today? It's a patter song from the Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, The Sorcerer. I included it, this part of the song anyway, because it does refer to curses of various kinds, and also just because I'm a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan. If you want to hear the whole song, we'll have it at the end of the episode. Gilbert's lyrics are amazing. I am always stunned by his gift for wordplay, and I love listening to and admiring what he can do with words. And Sullivan's music is nice, too, but and I really like Sullivan's music, but Gilbert is just a genius at wordplay. Yes, it's a lot of fun. All right. So on our topic, there's more than one sort of cursing. So what are the different types of cursing? 
One of the most common understandings of what cursing involves, at least today, involves bad language. This is like when you see characters in a comic strip uttering what looks like a string of typewriter marks in their speech balloons. Those typewriter marks represent bad words like the F word or the S word or damn or hell or other words the cartoonist didn't want to spell out. Usually there's not a strict one-to-one correlation. It's unidentifiable what the character would really be saying. In cartooning, there's actually a technical name for those typewriter marks. They're called Grawlics, spelled G-R-A-W-L-I-X. And Grawlics is a term that was coined by the Beetle Bailey cartoonist Mort Walker. You also hear the oral equivalent of this in cartoons, in animated cartoons, like Hanna-Barbera's Wacky Races, when the villain Dick Dastardly is defeated and he says his catchphrase, curses foiled again. Well, when he says the word curses... It's a substitute for an actual curse word so that the adults in the audience are meant to understand that he said something along the lines of damn foiled again, but it's meant to be kid friendly. So we ju- they just substitute the word curses, or at least that's how this originated. By this point, curses has taken on a life of its own. And so someone could say, oh, curses without even intending it to stand for anything else. But apart from substitutes like Grawlics or Curses Foiled Again, today when people talk about cursing, they often mean using bad words. That is, terms that have either a strong or a mild taboo against using them, which is something that appears in every language. That's related to the original concept of cursing, but its meaning has drifted over time. Originally, to curse someone was to speak bad things about a person with a hope of causing those bad things to happen to the person. The Latin-based equivalent term for this is malediction, from the terms male, which means badly, and dicire, which means to speak. So to utter a malediction is to speak badly of someone else, meaning to wish or cause something bad to happen to them. The opposite of malediction is benediction, which is based on the Latin word bene, which means well. So to utter a benediction is to speak well of a person, in this context meaning to wish or cause something good to happen to them. Benediction and malediction are thus the Latin-based Equivalent terms for blessing and cursing. Are the things we consider curse words technically curses in the historic sense? No, not necessarily. This is a this is a bonus fact if you want to be really persnickety about what counts as cursing. In order for something to be a curse, it has to include the idea of something bad happening. And not all of the things we consider curse words actually meet this test. For example, the F word And the S word refer to bodily processes that humans do in private. But if you say these words, you're not wishing evil on anybody. Similarly, if people irreverently say the Lord's name, that's not a curse in the historical sense either. Technically, it's what counts as a profanity because it's it treats the Lord's name in a profane or irreverent way. But it's not wishing ill on anyone or anything. 
However, as we noted back in episode 119, the scientist Ernest Rutherford would damn his lab equipment to hell when it didn't work properly. And saying, damn this Bunsen burner, would be a curse in the traditional sense because, at least on the verbal level, it wishes something bad to happen to the Bunsen burner. In reality, Rutherford was just expressing frustration, not literally wishing that his lab equipment would be sent to hell. But back in the day, people would say things like, damn you, sir, and mean it. In the Middle Ages, go to hell was considered one of the absolute worst things you could say to someone, far worse than the F word was, because it was taken as literally wishing eternal damnation on someone. But it's lost that meaning in modern speech, and people aren't really wishing damnation on others when they say damn you or go to hell. So today, the moral character of using that phrase is different than it was in the Middle Ages. The bottom line, though, is that historically, cursing was wishing evil on a person or wishing harm on a person. But in subsequent centuries, the meaning drifted, and so today, any form of mildly or strongly tabooed speech is considered curse words or cuss words, because cussing is the same thing as cursing. I mean, that's where the word cuss comes from. It's just had the R sound drop out. So cursing becomes cussing. Right. As every uh, Southern boy has ever heard from his mother, don't you use those cuss words. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so has the concept of cursing changed in other ways? Yeah. One of the things that often happens in language is that a term that originally applies to an action can transfer to refer to the effects of the action. So if the act of wishing a bad thing can be called cursing, the resulting bad thing can be called a curse. For example, if you try to curse someone by putting a spell on him so he'll die, you could then refer to his death as a curse. You know, the curse of death has been visited on him. And this could be dissociated or separated from the act of putting a curse on someone. So today, any bad thing can be called a curse. For example, during the Cold War, you could say the arms race is a curse on mankind. Or if you're a famous person who can't go outside without photographers chasing you, you might talk about the curse of celebrity. But these would really just be entirely natural bad things that happen. You know, there is no great sorcerer somewhere literally cursing mankind with the arms race or literally causing celebrities to have a lack of privacy. That's that's editors that cause that, <laughs> not not a sorcerer. That's right. Well, what about when people uh, speak of things like the Kennedy curse or the Superman curse or the Red Sox Babe Ruth curse? Yeah. So I'm familiar with the first two. I'll have to defer to you on the third. Uh, I had to throw that one in being a Bostonian. <laughs> Sorry. Uh -huh. No problem. This is another extended use of the term where the word curse is being applied to a series of unfortunate events, to borrow a term from Lemony Snicket. Uh, when people speak of the Kennedy curse, they're referring to how bad things have happened to multiple members of the Kennedy family. JFK and RFK were both assassinated. 
Ted Kennedy had the Chappaquiddick auto accident and resulting scandal. JFK Jr. died in a plane crash and so on. So just a bunch of unfortunate things. When people speak of the Superman curse, they've noted that bad things have happened to actors who played Superman. The 1940s Superman, Kirk Allen, couldn't get decent acting jobs after he played the part. The 1950s Superman, George Reeves, died under mysterious circumstances. And the 1980s Superman, Christopher Reeve, was paralyzed after a horse riding accident. In all cases like this, people notice that a surprising number of bad things have happened to a group of people and called it a curse. Some have wondered if there might be something paranormal going on here, like could the sins of Joseph P. Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy clan, be being visited on his descendants somehow paranormally? But others would say, no, it's just a series of misfortunes and seeing anything paranormal would be superstitious. So what kind of curses will we be looking at in this episode? We'll be looking at the true paranormal kind of curses where someone speaks evil upon another person in hopes of making it happen. We'll be looking at how this concept is manifested in history, including in the Bible. We'll be looking at what the theoretical sources of power behind curses could be. We'll be looking at the morality of using curses, and we'll be looking, of course, at whether they actually work. Okay. Well, and when they requested this episode, Bill and Joe Martell mentioned two specific curses they were interested in. What can you tell us about those? The first was the Saco River curse, which refers to a curse allegedly placed on a river in New England. According to New England Today, there are multiple versions of the legend, but according to one of them, back in 1675... The wife and infant son of Squandro, chief of the Saco tribe, were traveling by canoe near the mouth of the river when they encountered three rowdy, drunken English sailors. The sailors allegedly made a few bets, then snatched the baby from his mother and threw him into the river to see if American Indian babies were natural swimmers, as some claimed they were. The mother rescued her baby, but he died a few days later. The grieving Squandro, who was said to have great spiritual powers, put a curse on the Saco River, saying that every year after, three white people would drown in the river. Some historical accounts state that the death of Squandro's son, which is said to have occurred in 1675, marked the end of peaceful relations between the settlers and the American Indians living in that region. So this definitely fits the classic pattern of a person deliberately doing something to cause harm to others. The same is true or sort of true of the other curse they mentioned, which was the Bucksport Witch's Foot Curse, uh, which also applies to a site in New England. According to RoadsideAmerica.com, it concerns Colonel Jonathan Buck, who died in 1795, the year after the wizard clip phenomena started happening down in Virginia, as we talked Talked about in episode 115. According to RoadsideAmerica.com, a drive along Maine's craggy coast is annoyingly picturesque. Pretty little towns and roads are clotted with leisure drivers when all you really want is a clear path to the cursed tomb of Colonel Buck. Perhaps the curse can be blamed for the traffic problems. People in this part of Maine can pin practically anything on that damned tomb. The tomb of the town's founder, Colonel Jonathan Buck, features a mysterious stain the image of a woman's stocking-clad foot, or maybe a boot. The leg stain on the memorial, according to legend, came about when Colonel Buck burned a witch and her leg rolled out of the bonfire. 
His heirs tried to clean the foot off the stone and are said to have replaced the monument twice, but the foot keeps coming back. The curse was called down upon the colonel by the deformed son of the witch. Your tomb shall bear the mark of a witch's foot for all eternity, or something like that. So it would be a damned tombstone. Uh, to damn something <laughs> means to condemn it, and this tombstone was condemned to have a witch's foot on it. <laughs> and if you look at the monument for the Buck family in the local cemetery, it does indeed have a water stain on it that looks kind of like a foot in a stocking. We'll have a link to Roadside America so you can see the photographs of the monument for yourself. And we'll be looking at the merits of both of these curses in the segment on the Reason Perspective. Both of these are relatively recent examples from the 1600s and 1700s, but what about ancient curses? Well, curses go back crazy far in human history. In fact, they almost certainly go back as far as human history itself does. Religion is a human universal that's found in every culture, and part of, part of religion is ritual. As we covered back in episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science, the difference between a religious ritual and a magic one is essentially whether the ritual is authorized or unauthorized. If a ritual is authorized by a particular religion, then it's considered a normal religious ritual. But if the religion doesn't authorize it, it tends to be classified as magic. The rituals that are considered magic are the shady, unauthorized ones, which also are frequently of foreign origin. Whether a ritual is authorized or not, many rituals are done with the intent of achieving a goal of some kind. Now, that isn't always the case. For example, people can worship God just to say how much they love him without asking him for anything. In the Bible, if you read some of the Psalms, that's exactly what they are, expressions of praise that don't ask God for anything. They just celebrate how great he is. You can check out Psalm number eight for an example of that. But much of the time, when people perform a ritual, at least part of what they're doing, I mean, they may be also just telling God that they love him, but they may also ask him for something. And so they would be trying to accomplish something by the ritual, either good or bad. If you're tr trying to accomplish something good, it could be for you or it could be for someone you care about. It could take different forms like healing or promoting good health getting a person to fall in love with you, helping conceive a child or bring a child safely to term, getting food by encouraging a good hunt or successful crops, having success in business, or being protected from danger. You know, all of those are good things, and there are lots of others too. I have a book called Ancient Christian Magic, Coptic Texts of Ritual Power, which is a collection of rituals used by early Christians in Egypt. And depending on whether they were considered authorized or unauthorized at the time by the Coptic Church, they would either be classified as sacramentals or as spells. I particularly like the fact that the book has not one but two rituals asking God and the angels to give you a good singing voice so that other people will be pleased to hear you sing. I really like that. That's so sweet. And also <laughs> maybe helped some, some early Egyptian singers' careers. <laughs> it also has another ritual I can sympathize with, to silence a dog. Mm. And the authors of the book for some reason suggest that this one would have been used by like a thief who wanted to keep a guard dog quiet. 
But I just can't help wondering if it was meant for use by a person who was just sick and fed up of the neighbor's barking dog and wanted to shut it up. I might need to get that from you after we're done recording. (laughs) (laughs) The, The flip side, of course, of using a ritual to accomplish something good is using it to do something bad, usually to one of your enemies. So that could be things like defeating them in battle thwarting their plans against you or getting justice on people who wronged you that, you know, where you couldn't otherwise get justice. You know, you can't take them to court. So talk to God about it, let's say. And given the universality of ritual in human cultures, people will have been doing rituals of blessing and cursing all the way down through history. And we see evidence of that in lots of cultures. For example, in a given ritual, you might make a representation of one of your enemies and then do things to it in hopes that it will happen to the person himself. Today, for example, we think of sticking pins in voodoo dolls, you know, where you represent your enemy as a doll and then you harm the doll as a symbol of what you hope happens to the person. Actually, though, even though we call them voodoo dolls, the practice goes way beyond the voodoo related religions. This is not a Afro-Caribbean thing. This is all over the place. They had similar dolls in Assyria and Egypt and Greece and Rome, and they would even stick pins in them. In European folk magic, they would make little dolls called poppets that they would use to cast spells on people. And in Scotland, they would make clay figurines known as clay bodies and then put them in streams or rivers to dissolve and thus cause gradual harm to the person they represented. Sometimes they'd make these dolls and then do things to them as part of a treaty-making ceremony between kings to show what would happen if one of the kings, usually the vassal, broke the treaty. For example, here's a set of curses from an ancient Near Eastern treaty that was made about 750 BC involving a local king named Mattiel. Listen for the parts that refer to objects, including figurines of Mattiel himself that are being manipulated in the covenant ritual. As this wax is consumed by fire, Thus, Matiel shall be consumed by fire. As this bow and these arrows are broken, thus the gods Inerta and Hadad shall break the bow of Matiel and the bows of his nobles. As a man of wax is blinded, thus Matiel shall be blinded. As this calf is cut up, thus Matiel and his nobles shall be cut up. So they had little wax figurines of a man representing Mattiel, and as part of the ritual, they apparently melted one of them, and they blinded one of them, signifying what would happen to him if he broke the covenant with the other king who was party to the treaty. A bit later, around 670 BC, the Neo-Assyrian king Esarhaddon imposed vassal treaties on other rulers in which one of the curses was, Just as one burns a wax figure in fire, dissolves a clay one in water, so may they burn your figure in fire, submerge it in water. So it was pretty common at the time to make effigies of wax or clay and then manipulate them to put a curse on someone. As John Wellington Wells said, you could... Perhaps if you were after an inheritance, melt a rich uncle in wax. And you certainly could curse your enemies if you want a proud foe to make tracks. People also made figurines of their opponents in other ways. 
For example, in Egypt during the Old and Middle Kingdoms, so that's from uh, like 2600 BC to about 1000 BC, including King Tut's time and Moses's time, they made what are known as execration texts. Execration is just another word for cursing. So these were curse texts. What would happen is you'd make a figurine out of ceramics or another material, write the name of an opponent on it, often in red ink. Then once the figurine had been identified with the opponent by putting his name on it, they would ritually smash it and potentially do other things to it. For example, we have one execration ritual from Egypt that says to do this to the figurine. Spit on him four times, trample on him with the left foot, smite him with a spear, slaughter him with a knife, place him on the fire, spit on him in the fire many times. <laughs> I love that spit on him in the fire many times. So in other words, abuse the heck out of the little figurine before you smash it. Because these figurines were smashed, Egyptologists have to go to the painstaking work of putting them back together to find out like whose name is written on this. But it's worth it because they contain some really useful information. Apparently, the Egyptian government, meaning Pharaoh's officials, were making the execration texts, and they contain the names, therefore, of Pharaoh's enemies, including those in foreign nations. So we get lots of references in the execration texts to foreign rulers, foreign ethnic groups, and foreign cities that were around at the time they were made and that Pharaoh wanted to have cursed. And execration texts are important in biblical archaeology because they refer to places mentioned in the Bible. In fact, the earliest mention of Jerusalem outside the Bible is found in an Egyptian execration text. It's also so early that it's from before the Israelites came into the promised land, so it wasn't even an Israelite city yet. If these were on figurines, why do you keep saying execration texts rather than execration dolls? Because the Egyptians didn't just use dolls to curse their opponents. They would also use other objects. For example, you could write the name of Pharaoh's enemy on a bowl and then smash it or on a jar or a block of clay or even a stone. And that gets us to our next way of putting curses on people, which is writing down the curse on a tablet. So who in the ancient world used curse tablets? They were especially popular in the Greco-Roman world. They were invented in Greece around 400 BC, and in Greek they were called katadesmoi, which comes from the Greek word meaning to bind down. So you'd use these curse tablets to bind your enemies with a curse. In Latin, they were called defixiones which comes from the Latin word meaning to stick in. And th that name reflects the fact that you'd stick a nail through the curse tablet as part of the ritual. Often, these were made on thin sheets of lead, and you'd write the curse on the sheet, then fold it, stick a nail through it, and bury it or otherwise deposit it underground so the Chthonic spirits or the spirits of the underworld would take note of the cursed tablet and hex your opponent. The Chthonic or underworld spirits you were appealing to could be gods, other spirits, or even the souls of the dead. Also, cursed tablets would frequently contain magical drawings, symbols, strings of vowels, 
and magic words that were known as voces mystique or mystical expressions. These didn't mean anything in ordinary Greek or Latin, but they presumably added power to the curse, and they may have represented things that the spirits would have responded to, like maybe stuff in their own spirit language or something. So what kind of curses did people put on these tablets? Well, the fact you stuck a nail through the cursed tablet was a good sign to the spirits that you wanted the people named in the tablet harmed. But to make what you wanted to happen extra clear, you'd write out the details of what you were hoping for. For example, here is a cursed tablet where a guy is invoking three deities against his business rivals and the tavern that they ran. Chthonian Hecate, Chthonian Artemis, Chthonian Hermes, look with hate upon Phanagoras and Demetrios and their tavern and their property and their possessions. I will bind my enemy Demetrios and Phanagoras in gore and in ashes with all the dead, nor will the next four-year cycle release you from the curse. In such a bond will I bind you, Demetrios, as strong as is possible, and I will hammer into your tongue a kunotos. A kunotos was the lowest roll on the ancient equivalent of dice. So here he's wishing that Demetrios the worst possible luck in business over the next four years with their tavern. So, so basically an ancient Yelp review. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. yeah. He also wants Demetrios and Phanagoras to be bound in gore and ashes with all the dead. So this was a really intense business rivalry. <laughs> right. You also could curse people even if you didn't know who they were. For example, Here's a curse tablet found in Roman Britain from someone who had been robbed of several denarii and either wanted justice or his money back. Bear in mind that a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer, so someone stole several days' wages from this person, and he was mad about it. I entrust to you, Mercury, the person who cheated me of these denarii, which he owed to me. May the guilty parties be half-naked, toothless, tremulous, gouty, Without pity from anyone, let him or them bring the stolen goods to the shrine and treasury of the most powerful God. The author of this curse wanted the thief to restore the money by bringing it to Mercury's shrine and to motivate the person to bring it back. It, he asked that the person be rendered half naked, toothless, tremulous, gouty and without pity from anyone. So he wasn't messing around with this curse. So did Christians ever put curses on people? Oh, yeah. Christians could want justice on their oppressors or for their opponents to fail just as much as anybody. They would therefore turn to God and his angels and ask for help against them. This kind of prayer is known as imprecatory prayer. An imprecation is it's another word for a curse. And so an imprecatory prayer is one where a person asks for harm to come to another person, except since God never does anything unjust, it amounts to asking for justice to be done to another person. This kind of prayer is found in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 35, David is praying about those who have wronged him, and he says, in part, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your deliverance. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. 
Let them be turned back and confounded who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let ruin come upon them unawares, and let the net which they hid ensnare them. Let them fall therein to ruin. So with imprecatory prayers or curse prayers like this one in the Bible, Christians have historically composed similar ones. For example, here's an imprecatory prayer from a papyrus found in Egypt. In this, a person asked God and the angels to help him against wrongdoers named Victor Hatre, Papnute, and David. He starts by addressing God directly. Yea, God of heaven and earth. Lord, you are the one who knows those things which are secret and those which are revealed. God, you who are the one who shall perform my judgment against all those who oppose me. He then asks several angels who he regards as father figures to intercede with God on his behalf. My father Michael, my father Gabriel, Suriel, Guniel, Raphael, not by my power, but by the power of the Lord Sabaoth and all those whose names are recited you shall appeal to the God of heaven and earth. Then he speaks about the people who have wronged him, including people who may be putting curses on him. Trample Victor Hatre and Papnute. Bring him down. He is acting like a demon. God, may you bring down David his son. Render him friendless in prison like a bronze chain as I produce the trusty words. Any person, everyone, who adjures bad things upon me, and everyone who calls my name evil, and those who curse me, all of them, O God, who shall perform my judgment against them all, Lord God, you shall bring all of them down. Lord, do not neglect my prayer and my request, for they have mistreated me. You must bring them down from their heights, just as all of them did to me. Lord Sabaoth, do not neglect me. The cherubim, the seraphim, the ten thousand angels and archangels shall appeal to the God of heaven and earth, and he shall perform my judgment against everyone who opposes me. Anyone who curses me, you must bring down and abandon him to demons. Yea, true beloved Savior, yea, consubstantial Trinity. Let me watch Victor Hatre and David his son. Let me watch him being inflicted by the spirit of the world. You must bring upon them all the sufferings of Job. O God, you must bring down Papnute from his height, abandon him to demons, number them with Judas on the day of judgment. You must liken them to those who have said, His blood is upon us for three generations. You must liken them to Cain who murdered Abel, his brother. And here is an imprecatory prayer from another papyrus, this one from around the A.D. 600s, by a widow seeking justice against a man named Shanute. First, the widow addresses Jesus, or Emmanuel, and describes her situation. Emmanuel, I am a poor widow with fatherless children, with nine, all of us with a single sigh, appeal to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the consubstantial Trinity, that he may hear and bring judgment on my behalf, quickly, against this man who is doing evil to me. God is then represented as speaking and assuring the widow. Throw your care upon me, for I am the father for orphans and the judge for widows. She then reviews some of God's great deeds in history. You, who made the first Adam, who looked upon the offering of Abel with honor and esteem, 
who crowned Stephen the first martyr, who saved Noah from the water of the flood, who brought Lot out of Sodom and saved him, who freed Daniel from the lion's den, who gave Job power to endure all the trials that came upon him from the enemy until he conquered him through his endurance, who loves the righteous, whom the righteous love. I adjure you, bring judgment on our behalf quickly against Shinute, son of Pamin. You must strike him just as you struck the 185,000 among the host of the Assyrians in a single night. You must bring upon him fever and chill and jaundice. You must make his enemies open their mouths against him. He must flee along a single path and his enemies must flee after him. You must bring upon him judgment on my behalf. And for good measure, this papyrus was placed on a mummy who also would ask God to bring justice to the widow and her fatherless children. We know that because the papyrus also says this. The mummy on which this papyrus for vengeance is placed must appeal night and day to the Lord from its bed to the ground in which it is buried with the other mummies lying around this grave, all of them crying out together, what is in this papyrus until God hears and brings judgment on our behalf quickly. Amen. One of the things you'll note is how well these Christians know their Bible and their theology. Both of them invoke God not just as the Trinity, but as the consubstantial Trinity, which is a fairly subtle theological point. And both of them make allusions to various things in biblical history, especially the widow who alludes to some less well-known incidents that many Christians today aren't familiar with. However, I should point out, because of the lack of literacy in the ancient world, these papyri were likely prepared by professional scribes. But still, it shows that the Christians who actually were composing curses in the ancient world were quite familiar with theology and the Bible. Let's take a quick break from our uh, discussion of maledictions and pronounce some benedictions. Uh, we'd like to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Lisa P., Father Jason, David P., Lizzie G., and Philip S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to extend a special thanks to our patrons who selected today's episode, Bill and Joe Martell. Yeah, great topic. I've been looking forward to doing this one already, and it was nice to uh, have them request it. it. Got me to do the research on it earlier than I otherwise would have. I think it's a really cool topic. Thank you very much. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about curses? One type of thing we need to look at are specific curses, like the Kennedy curse, the Sacco River curse, and the Witch's Foot curse. What does the reason, perspective, and history have to say about these curses? However, the basic questions are whether or not curses are real, and if they are, how they work. An important issue is what would make curses work, and here there are two basic options. There might be something natural that lets curses work, or it might, might be something supernatural 
We also need to consider whether, if curses are real, how worried we should be about them and how they might be removed. And finally, we need to consider whether and in what circumstances it would be moral for Christians to use curses. All right. So what can we say about curses from the reason perspective? Let's start with the Kennedy curse and all the bad things that have happened to members of the Kennedy family. Could there be a real curse at work here? I don't think so, but this is a good test case for why people suspect curses in particular situations. Humans are wired to find patterns even in random data, and so if we hear about a string of unfortunate things happening, it's natural to try to find some cause behind them. That's just a natural product of our drive to use our intelligence to promote our well-being. If bad things are happening to us, we want to find out what the cause is so we can eliminate it. Uh, And it's natural for us to probe the causes of why bad things happen to other people in case they start happening to us as well. If we can't find a natural cause for a series of misfortunes, it's logical to suspect a supernatural cause or a curse. But before arriving at that conclusion, we need to ask some hard questions. One of them is, do we have a meaningful pattern or is what we're seeing just random noise, you know, just random chance? If you look at any family over a period of multiple generations, you will find bad things happening to the members of that family because that's just life. The question is whether you're seeing more bad things than you would expect to happen by random chance. So far as I know, there haven't been any studies of whether more bad things happen to the Kennedys than you'd expect from chance. But let's suppose there are, that they really have suffered more misfortunes than other families would. The next question we'd need to ask would be whether there could be a natural cause for those calamities. For example, suppose you notice that in a particular family, let's say the descendants of Queen Victoria of England, that a surprising number of them have a problem in that they bruise really badly and bleed for a really long time if they get cut. You might suspect that there's some kind of supernatural curse at work, but there isn't. There's a natural explanation. The condition they're suffering from is hemophilia, and it's a hereditary genetic disease. In fact, the descendants of Queen Victoria were prone to this because she had a genetic mutation that is responsible for it, and she passed it on to some of her children who married other members of European royal families. And because royals tend to marry other royals, hemophilia was common in European royal families in the 19th century, which is why it became known as the royal disease. But it was due to purely natural causes, in this case, a genetic one, rather than due to a supernatural curse. Yeah, but what about the Kennedys? A genetic disease wouldn't cause your family to have a tendency toward the things that have struck them, like assassinations and plane crashes and auto accidents and drug overdoses, skiing accidents and all that such. You might not think so, but there could be a gene or a set of genes in the family that make them prone to risky behavior, and the risky behavior then takes its toll. Also, It need not be genetic. It could be a cultural educational problem in the family where they, you know, they're raised in such a way that they're prone to undertake risky activities. Add in a couple of assassinations and you've got the recipe for what looks like a family curse. 
But the cause is still entirely natural, whether it's due to genes or the way the Kennedys are raised, you know, whether it's nature or nurture. The evidence suggests that the Kennedys are a wealthy, privileged, ambitious family whose members take a lot of risks. And I think that's the real explanation behind the so-called Kennedy curse. Let's take a look at one of the curses that our patrons asked about, the Sacco River curse. Now, I have a personal connection to this because uh-huh. I've I've canoed on the Sacco River many times over the years. Uh, so, and, and so, spoiler, you... You I've, haven't died as a result. I have not died as a result, nor has anyone I've canoed with died with as a result. But uh, I've got some insight into the, into the, maybe this curse. But what can, what can we say about it? Well, a problem with this one is that we don't have statistics indicating that more people die on the Saco River each year than we'd expect by random chance. You know, if you have any river that people are doing stuff on, some of them are going to die. The question is, what would you expect by random chance? And are there more on this river than you'd expect? Even if there are, it may have a natural cause. People have pointed out that because of the geological situation of the river, it has patches that are subject to strong undertow, which could cause drownings. And some have suggested that its use as a logging river, where logs are floated down it as part of the lumber industry, could cause accidental deaths. I'd, I'd want to add from my experience a, a third possibility, which is uh-huh. it's it, its use as, as as I've seen is a recreational river where on the weekends in the summer, you have large groups of young people uh, often imbibing mm-hmm. uh, to excess yeah. that could also cause accidental deaths. Indeed. There's also a problem with the historical sources. There's more than one version of how the curse supposedly started. And I mean, we quoted one version, but there are others and nobody is sure what if anything really happened. Despite the legend that it started in the 1670s, there's no record of the curse until the 1880s, over 200 years later. And even if Squandro really did try to curse the river, that doesn't mean the curse had any effect. What about the Bucksport witch's foot curse? Did someone really curse Colonel Buck so that an image of her foot would appear on his grave? According to Roadside America... So what really happened anyway? No one knows, but here are some points to consider. One, no witches were ever put on trial in Maine. Two, Colonel Buck was a justice of the peace. He didn't have the authority to try and burn anyone. Three, Colonel Buck was born in 1719, long after the last witch was killed in America, and no witches were ever burned in America. Four, the stain appears on a monument erected in Colonel Buck's memory 75 years after he died on March 18th, 1795. His grave is in another part of the cemetery, and his real tombstone is unblemished. So this curse looks kind of unpromising. You mentioned the idea that curses could have a natural origin, and you've specifically cited things like genes, upbringing, and the physical properties of a river. None of these would really be paranormal curses, just natural things that have bad effects. Could the kind of paranormal curses we're interested in have a natural cause? Potentially, if there are hidden or occult forces, that is, undiscovered aspects to nature that could be producing them. Various cultures around the world have thought that there is a paranormal force or energy in the world that humans can manipulate to cause various effects, which is sometimes held to be the basis of magic. The ancient Egyptians called this force Heka. Sometimes anthropologists call it manna 
after a Polynesian word for a similar concept. However, from the reason perspective, the evidence for such a force is not strong. If it were, magic would be an accepted form of technology that people would use all the time. In fact, this force would have been discovered alongside the other forces of nature, like electricity and magnetism, that used to be part of what people would call natural magic, but then became natural science after the scientific revolution. The most promising place to look for such a force would be in modern parapsychological studies that relate to psychic powers. However, if psychic powers work at all, we don't have a good theoretical understanding of why they would work, so it might or might not involve the manipulation of a force. Didn't Aquinas hold that when the human soul is moved by vehement hatred, it can sometimes cause a harmful effect on other people? Yeah, this is something we discussed back in episode 106 on Aquinas and the Occult. It was his explanation for how the evil eye works. In essence, he held that humans had a weak, natural ability to affect other people in a way that could harm them, but it was only a weak ability, and so Aquinas cited children who have weaker bodies as being the most vulnerable to it, or among the most vulnerable to it. Today, we would classify such a natural ability as a psychic power, and specifically as a form of telekinesis or psychokinesis, or as it's sometimes called, remote influencing or remote perturbation. All the same thing. And what do modern parapsychological studies show about this subject? There's a debate. First, parapsychologists often make a distinction between what's called macro-psychokinesis and micro-psychokinesis. Macro-psychokinesis is what you'd need to accomplish large-scale effects, like levitating a visible object or harming another person with it. Micro-psychokinesis is what you'd need to accomplish small-scale effects, like affecting the temperature reading of a thermistor or the output of a computerized random number generator. As we'll discuss in a future episode on telekinesis, Parapsychologists debate whether we have any good evidence for macro-psychokinesis, but it seems to be something, if it is there, that's fairly hard to produce. As the British journalist John Ronson discusses in his book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and as we'll discuss in a future episode, the U.S. military has investigated whether macro-psychokinesis can be used to do things like kill a goat or a hamster. And there are claims that it can be, and that government guys have done this. However, if so, it's something that's not easy to do, and there are significant costs to the person trying to do it. Apparently, if, if you're staring a goat to death, you can hurt yourself seriously in the process. <laughs> Don't stare goats to death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would telekinetic curses be something we'd really need to worry about? Not so much in view of the problematic evidence for macropsychokinesis. This would be a weak ability at best, and it would be hard for a person to significantly harm you by this means, and it could cause significant harm to them in return. Also, we have no evidence that a person could use it to harm you in an ongoing way. The way telekinesis is thought to work, a person at most might be able to conduct a kind of psychic attack that's time-limited to when he's concentrating, but there's no evidence for a person doing something to you once that would cause ongoing problems. So it wouldn't be a curse as we normally understand that concept, since curses are thought to be ongoing things rather than just one-time misfortunes. 
All right. What can we say about curses from the faith perspective? What kind of supernatural sources might cause them? Basically, spirits or non-physical beings of one sort or another. In principle, these could include God, the gods, angels, demons, and the souls of departed human beings. However, from a faith perspective, the gods don't exist. At best, they would be angelic spirits of some sort, you know, like demons. So we don't need to consider them independently. Also, departed human souls seem to have pretty circumscribed limits. Not only do human spirits only have a weak ability to influence nature on their own, to the extent they do, the souls of people in heaven or in purgatory are fully obedient to God's will, so they won't be harming people apart from it. And as Aquinas argues, the souls of the damned can only do things if God allows them. For example, in episode 106, we talked about how Aquinas said that the damned might occasionally be allowed to appear to the living to scare the living back into the straight and narrow, but they don't have free reign to act as independent agents. So whether we're talking about human spirits in heaven, hell, or purgatory, they apparently have pretty strict limits on what they can do only in accord with God's will. So we won't need to devote further time to them. That then leaves us angelic and demon spirits. What about them? We think of curses as malevolent things, so good angels wouldn't be doing anything malevolent. Hypothetically, God might assign an angel to cause a person temporal difficulties to motivate that person to turn away from sin, but that wouldn't be a malevolent curse. It would be performing a salutary healing function. All right, then what about demons? Demons can harm people, as we read about in Scripture. They can even cause ongoing problems, as we read about in Matthew 17, where the demon that caused an ongoing case of epilepsy was difficult to drive out. Cases of possession or obsession also can involve ongoing problems caused by demons, at least until they're driven off by prayer, exorcism, or other spiritual means. But what we don't have in Scripture are situations where a person invokes a demon and successfully puts a curse on someone else. Getting demons to do your bidding was one of the key goals of certain types of magic in the Middle Ages, but we don't have good evidence of it actually working. If anything, the demons would be more interested in harming the person who summoned them than they would be in harming an innocent person. An innocent person is going to have God's protection, while the summoner of the demon is deliberately opening himself to demonic encounters. Therefore, if anything, the demons would take an interest in the person performing the magic, and that person would be at risk of getting hurt. But in any event, we don't have scriptural evidence, and we don't seem to have good evidence outside of scripture of being able to invoke demons to get them to harm people. I can't say it never happens, but it doesn't appear to be something that occurs with any frequency or it would be better attested in the sources. Haven't a lot of people in history thought that a witch or warlock consorted with the devil and then put a hex on them? Absolutely, but this is most likely a popular delusion. We have found a witch! May we burn What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. We got better. Burn already! People in many cultures have thought that witches were harming them, and since poisons were part of harmful magic, that may have been true in some cases. 
But if it were easy to get demons to actually do your bidding and cause supernatural effects on other people, this would be a well-established phenomenon. People would have historically and would be today using it to accomplish easily documentable effects. It would be an accepted phenomenon even among non-Christian skeptics. It would be under scientific study, and the history of science would be very different. Ultimately, demons aren't that interested in causing physical harm. They're interested in causing spiritual harm by getting people to sin. And that means they don't show their hand very often, lest they be too obvious. They're also subject to limitations in what God allows them to do. In the book of Job, chapter 1, we read... Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going back and forth on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So God put a hedge around Job to prevent the devil from being able to harm him. Thus, between God protecting the innocent and the demons not wanting to show their hand very often, it isn't going to be easy to get a demon to harm someone else in an ongoing way. Purely hypothetically, it might rarely be possible to put a demonic curse on someone, but this would be rare, and the vast majority of the time it would not be effective, and would be much more likely to blow up in your face and harm you if you tried to do it. What about passages where Paul speaks about handing people over to Satan? There are two of these. The first is in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is telling the Corinthians how to deal with the case of a man who is committing extremely immoral behavior. And he tells them, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The second passage occurs in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul writes, by rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith, among them Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There are a few things to note about these passages. The first is that in both of them, the purpose of this action is to help the person in question. Paul wants it done for the Corinthian man to help him be saved, and he's done it to Hymenaeus and Alexander so that they can learn not to blaspheme. In both cases, the ultimate purpose isn't to harm the person, but to help them. Second, in the first passage, Paul speaks about the destruction of the flesh so that the man's spirit may be saved. When Paul speaks about flesh, he often is using the word metaphorically. It's not a reference to one's literal physical flesh. Instead, it's a reference to our fallen carnal nature or tendency to sin, which is why some versions will translate the word with something like sinful nature. And that seems to be the meaning here. Paul is wanting the action to be done to the Corinthian man so that his sinful nature can be removed so that he'll repent and be saved. 
The purpose is thus firmly medicinal. This leaves us with the nature of the act itself, which Paul describes as a delivering or handing over of these people to Satan. Some have thought that Paul is talking about a ceremony in which the devil is invoked and invited to go after the offender, which would be putting a curse on him. However, there are some difficulties with this view. First, Paul tells the Corinthians to perform the action with the power of our Lord Jesus, which indicates that Jesus is the real spiritual actor here, not the devil. Jesus is where the ultimate power lies. This action is only expected to be effective because of the power of God. Second, it's hard to imagine Paul praying to the devil and asking him to hurt someone, much less telling a church of spiritually weak people like the Corinthians to start invoking the devil, even for a good cause. It's just really hard to imagine Paul advising them to do that. Third, the devil would be stupid to respond to such requests, since the purpose of the action is to get the people to repent and be saved, which is precisely what the devil doesn't want. The devil would want the Corinthian man to keep doing what he's doing, and he would want Hymenaeus and Alexander to keep blaspheming, so he wouldn't be inclined to go after these people just because Paul asks him to. If the passages aren't about putting a demonic curse on these people, what are they about? Most likely, he's not talking about asking the devil to directly harm them. Instead, he's saying that they should be excommunicated or cast out of the church and returned to the sphere of the world, which was under Satan's domination. That way, they would be deprived of the protection and fellowship of the church. They wouldn't receive support from other Christians. They would have to live as Christians in a non-Christian world without support which would be painful, and it would be even more painful in their society, which wasn't as individualistic as ours. So people felt it a lot more if they lost their support network. They also would be denied the grace of the sacraments, and they might lose some of the hedge that God built around them as Christians, so they might experience some unpleasant effects, at least if the demons didn't realize why they'd been expelled and went after them. In any event, it looks like Paul is talking about excommunication, you know, returning people to that satanic outside world, rather than literally putting a demonic curse on anybody. And that's consistent with the practice of the church in later ages, which is involved excommunication to get people to repent, but not bishops putting demonic curses on people. What about curses placed by God? The Bible does describe God as placing curses on various people or things. The question is how this language is to be understood. And we need to be careful here because the Israelites had a different worldview and it changed over time as God worked with them. Early in their history, when God took them as his people in, you know, at the beginning, they weren't that different from other ancient Near Eastern groups. That's one reason that God had such a difficult time weaning them off polytheism and idolatry. It's also why Jesus said that Moses wrote them certain commandments because their hearts were hard and they weren't yet prepared to fully accept God's will. God therefore worked with them anyway and gradually purified their understanding of various concepts. This included understanding concepts connected to cursing. For example, Here's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The relevant part of that for our purposes is the part that says God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, which some have taken to support the idea of family or generational curses. But notice that there are two important qualifiers here. First, it says that the iniquity is visited on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So if you're not among those who hate God, you won't be punished. Second, it immediately promises mercy to thousands of those who love me. What this really is saying is that God will punish people who turn their back on him and worship false gods, but will give mercy to anyone who loves him. It's not about generational curses, but because of the way it's phrased and the way many Israelites thought, people have taken it that way. And we know that because there was a proverb later on in Israel's history that was circulating. The proverb was, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, our fathers did the bad stuff and now we have to suffer punishment because of them. But that wasn't God's understanding. And he sent not one, but two prophets to refute this proverb. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel reject this. For example, here's what Jeremiah says in chapter 31 of his book. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. The reason we quoted Jeremiah is because he says this more concisely, but Ezekiel really labors the point. It's basically all of chapter 18 of Ezekiel, and he makes it really clear that God does not do intergenerational punishment. That's not to say that parents can't do bad things that will have consequences for their children. I mean, if you gamble away the family fortune so that you become poor, your children will be disadvantaged. But it is to say that God does not inflict harm on people in one generation as a punishment for something done in a previous generation. Thus, the original sin that we're born with is not a punishment for the fall of man. It's a deprivation of sanctifying grace that we're born with because our first parents gambled away the spiritual family fortune in a risky bet with the devil. To what extent does God inflict harm at all? This is an open question in theology. The ancient Near East was a place where nations were ruled by powerful kings. And since God is powerful, it was natural for the Israelites to think about him in terms of a strong king who did king-like things. One of the things that ancient Near Eastern kings did was punish their enemies. So, when something bad happened to one of God's enemies, it was natural for the Israelites to look at that and say, well, God is punishing one of his enemies, just like a king would. But God continued to educate them, and they gradually learned that not all suffering is punishment. And that's one of the points of the book of Job. 
sometimes an individual may suffer not because God is punishing him, but because he merely allows it. So the Israelites were presented with a question. Is a person suffering because God is punishing him, or is God merely allowing this suffering for some purpose? This question took on a new dimension as God educated them in his ethic of universal love, which is something that Jesus really stressed. Since suffering is a form of evil, namely physical evil in contrast to sin, which is moral evil, this became part of the problem of evil that philosophers and theologians discuss. In the Christian age, many theologians sought to answer this question by, na- by making a number of points. First, God can never cause moral evil or sin to happen because that would make him a sinner and he's infinitely good. At most, God only ever allows moral evil to occur. Second, theologians historically have argued, God may sometimes cause suffering or physical evil because it's not morally wrong. It's not moral evil. He thus could cause physical evils like suffering in order to accomplish some good, like getting people to repent. Third, However, in other cases, God doesn't cause physical evil, but he may allow it again to accomplish some good. However, there is a question of whether God ever positively causes suffering or whether he merely allows it to accomplish a good. On this view, which seems to be increasingly reflected in recent church documents, God may just allow the suffering, but he doesn't actively cause it. Whatever the answer to this question may be, Suffering is something that only happens because God will bring a good out of it. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church states in paragraph 324, The fact that God permits physical and even moral evil is a mystery that God illuminates by his Son Jesus Christ who died and rose to vanquish evil. Faith gives us the certainty that God would not permit an evil if he did not cause a good to come from that very evil, by ways that we shall fully know only in eternal life. So God would not permit an evil if he did not cause some good to come from that same evil. This means that whether the language regarding divine curses that we find in the Bible is to be understood in terms of God actively causing a physical evil to occur, or whether it's to be understood only as him merely allowing a physical evil to occur— Such things happen only because God will bring a good out of them. They always have an ultimately positive purpose, which makes them a little hard to call curses in the modern malevolent understanding of that term. If God can at least allow something bad to happen to a person for a good cause, what about the morality of asking him to do this? Can Christians ever ask for bad things to happen to people? In light of the ethic of universal love, proclaimed by Jesus, according to which we should love even our enemies, it would be easy to think that the answer is no. At a minimum, an informed answer will need to be highly qualified. The bottom line is that we must always wish and hope for the best outcome for all who are involved in a situation. At the same time, if a person has set themselves against that best possible outcome, It's not wrong to ask that their wishes won't prevail. In such situations, it is reasonable to ask God 
to at least allow that person's wishes to be frustrated. Thus, if a person is bent on doing evil, it would be appropriate to pray, God, please don't let this person succeed. But what should they pray for specifically? It depends on how much time they have and how comprehensive they have the luxury to be in their prayers. I can tell you what I do when I'm praying that evil not prevail in a particular situation, and it's kind of a multi-part request. At the top level, I pray that the evildoers repent before the evil is committed so that no harm is done. Or if they're in the midst of committing it, I pray that they repent and stop the evil that they're already committing. If that's not possible, I pray that something will happen to stop them. I also pray that God give them grace in hopes of their repentance afterwards. In both of these requests, stopping the evil and helping them repent, I pray that God will be as gentle with them as possible, just as I want God to be gentle with me when I sin and need to repent. That's kind of a complicated set of contingent requests, and in a given situation, I may not call all of them to mind, but I have a virtual intention that I've previously established, so God knows my ultimate desire is to pray for good to prevail in the way that's as gentle as possible for everyone. What about people who straight out pray for harm to be done to another person? Is that ever legitimate? In principle, it can be. Consider the case of a police officer who's dealing with a hostage situation. There's a criminal who's taken a hostage, and the only practical way, given the tactical situation, for the police officer to save the hostage's life is to kill the criminal by shooting him in the head. In that case, the police officer could legitimately pray, Lord, guide the path of my bullet. In that situation, even if the police officer doesn't call it to mind, there still should be an openness on his part to another better solution if one emerges, like a hope that the criminal will at the last moment release the hostage so nobody has to be killed. As long as that kind of consideration is in the back of his mind, even if it's unconscious at the moment, he still has a fundamental orientation towards good rather than just wanting to kill the criminal. And so the prayer will be legitimate. What about in the more common kind of situation where someone hurts us and we want to hurt them back as a matter of justice? You know, God, that person has hurt me, so now I want him to experience what it's like. In principle, that's also legitimate, but I think we still need to retain an openness to other better solutions, like the person repenting and receiving mercy without having to go through what we went through. If I want the opportunity to repent and have mercy, I obviously need to want that for others as well. Like everyone else, you know, in life, there have been people who have hurt me, and I understand the desires that flow from that. But I've arrived at a point where I never ask for such a person to be hurt. Instead, I ask God to help both me and the person who hurt me get to the place where we need to be spiritually And I ask that he do that in the gentlest way possible. That way, I'm not asking anything for myself that I'm not asking for the other person. I'm asking that good prevail. That's the number one goal. And I'm asking that we all arrive there in the most merciful way possible, the gentlest way possible, which is the number two goal, because I'm really not interested in the other person being hurt as a matter of justice. I'm interested in the other person getting where they need to be spiritually. 
But if I want to get to where I need to be spiritually in a really smooth fashion, then I need to want that for the other person too. For some people, that can seem complicated and, and abstract, and that just may be me being me, so I don't judge others who will pray more concretely, give me justice, but it's not where I'm personally at. I want the good to prevail, but because I'm aware of my own need for mercy, I also pray for mercy for everybody. And thus, I'm not personally in the business of asking for divine curses. What should we do if we suspect that we're under a curse? Well, the first thing to do is a reality check, because most of the time, the curse is imaginary. A person is just having a string of bad luck. However, it can be reasonable to look into whether there may be a naturalistic cause behind a series of bad events, and if so, take steps to address it. I mean, for example, suppose you think, oh, I'm, I can't get a job, I'm cursed. Well, maybe there aren't enough openings for the kind of work you're applying for, or your qualifications aren't right, or there's something wrong with your interview technique. In such cases, you might want to consider a different type of work, or getting different qualifications, or taking a class on doing a good interview. But as long as the cause of the events is natural, it isn't a curse in the sense that we're talking about in this episode. Supernatural explanations should be resorted to only if there's no natural cause or causes for, the, for unfortunate things that go way beyond random chance. And in those cases, there are two potential supernatural sources that might be behind the events. The first is demons, and the second is God, whether one understands him as causing or merely allowing the events in order to promote your spiritual good. If it's demons, one could employ the usual steps, prayer, sacramentals like holy water, and you know, going to the sacraments, and if necessary, exorcism. Whether or not it's demons, one should do an examination of conscience, repent, and frequent the sacraments. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line? How worried do we need to be about curses? Not very. The vast majority of the time, curses aren't real. The perception that they are is caused by the human tendency to see patterns in random data, like bad luck events. Sometimes there can be a natural cause for a series of unfortunate events, but that's not a supernatural curse, and the natural cause or causes of the events can be addressed. We also don't have to worry much about demonic curses because God protects his people unless they specifically start invoking demons. And it's not easy for people to get demons to do what they want. So it's unlikely anybody could get a demon to take an interest in hurting us. And even if someone did, there are ways of dealing with it, like prayer, sacraments, sacramentals, and exorcism. Finally, God loves us. God is love, and so anything he causes or allows to happen to us is always for our own good, and or for someone's good. And no matter what we've done, we can always return to fellowship with him by repenting and accepting his offer of grace and mercy. Okay. Jimmy, what further resources do you want to offer to the listener on this topic? Well, we'll have a link to that book on ancient Christian magic that we quoted from, also a book on magic in ancient Greece and Rome, the book Parapsychology, a handbook for the 21st century, which has a section on telekinesis and what modern studies have said about that, John Ronson's book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, an article on the Sacco River Curse, and another on Squandro as well as Roadside America's page on the Bucksport Witch's Foot Curse, and another page on the legends of Colonel John Buck, 
also a page on voodoo dolls, an article on ancient treaties involving curses, a link to an article on execration texts, and another on curse tablets. All right. So that should do it for our discussion of curses. Let's talk about our, uh, some mysterious feedback we've received from listeners on the series of episodes we did on the Young Earth. Our first feedback comes from Andrew on Facebook, who says, One of my favorite episodes so far. Seriously, this episode and this podcast were made for each other. Jimmy loved your unbiased, no-skin-in-the-game approach to the subject and respect for both sides. Dom, one of your finest episodes as co-host, helping to direct the flow of the episode. Thank you so much, Andrew. We really appreciate it. The Young Earth series was uh, really interesting to do, and we've got a lot of positive feedback on it. Kelly writes on Facebook, I'm going to have that dinosaur song in my head for days. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's really, really catchy. I had it in my, day, in my head for days, and so I wanted to share. Herot on YouTube mentions, uh, after Jimmy mentioned a personal connection he had to the story, I'm excited to have a personal connection to this topic, the topic of this episode as well. I was actually born and raised on the earth, so its age has always been of interest to me. I'm not surprised Jimmy Aiken did not mention this as well in his personal connections with this story. I've suspected for a while he's not from here, since humans don't generally have the capacity to know that much random information off the top of their heads. Time Lord Theory confirmed. Hey, I'm half human on my mother's side. <laughs> Nicholas Mercier writes on YouTube, I applaud Jimmy's attempt here at fairness, but if the Young Earth Catholics has to be truthful at looking at CCC paragraph 283, it is beholden on those who like to say that the church gives free reign on the age of the earth to reconcile what the Pontifical Biblical Commission said in 1909, for instance. So I appreciate that Nicholas recognizes some potential tension between earlier and later magisterial documents. Per the principle of doctrinal development, though, the Holy Spirit brings the church into greater understanding of the deposit of faith with additional time. And so that in ordinary circumstances will generate a, a priority for more recent statements, which would be subject to more doctrinal development than earlier ones. However, there are a couple of problems with citing the early Pontifical Biblical Commission statements from the early 1900s. The first one is they are considered obsolete at this point. That's been confirmed by Cardinal Ratzinger and by Cardinal Levada, both heads of the Pontifical Biblical Commission, that you know these early documents from the PBC are no longer binding. They were temporary rulings of a cautionary nature that have since been superseded. So you really can't quote those as if there has been no development on them. The Pontifical Biblical Commission and popes like Benedict XVI have acknowledged that those are no longer in operation. The other problem, though, is if you look at the 1909 PBC series of questions on the interpretation of Genesis, you look at the last question, and it does not prevent an old earth. It does not mandate a young earth. What it deals with is the question of the interpretation of the days of Genesis. And we'll talk about this more in a, in a future episode on the days of, of Genesis 1. It articulates two possible understandings. Now, there are other understandings, and the Catechism has uh, apparently adopted a third understanding. But the two that the PBC mentioned in 1909 were uh, the literal 24-hour day theory and what's called the day-age theory. 
where each day of creation doesn't represent a 24-hour period, but some unspecified longer period of time. And the whole I, the reason that people look at the day-age theory is because it allows for an old Earth. And what the PBC said in 1909 was that scholars could hold either the literal 24-hour day theory or the day-age theory. They didn't go into whether you could have additional theories beyond that, but they said at least with these two, yeah, you could hold either one of these. And if you have the 24-hour day theory, that's going to point to a young Earth. But if you have the day-age theory, that allows for an old Earth. So already in 1909, the PBC or Pontifical Biblical Commission was allowing for an old Earth and giving scholars, Catholic scholars permission to hold that. Mercy alumni on YouTube writes, Thanks for exploring this. Could you please explain more about how the catechism uses the term symbolic for Genesis, but then there is also room for Catholics to believe in a young earth? I'm trying to assure a Protestant that belief in a young earth is not a stumbling block to becoming Catholic, but it's a bit difficult when the catechism itself says symbolic in black and white. Help? I greatly appreciate any assistance with this. I'll, I'll be what help I can. There have been attempts by young earth supporters to interpret that paragraph of the catechism in a way that would still allow these days to be 24-hour days, even though it uses the word symbolic here. I won't go into the details of that. I don't think it ultimately works for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about more in the day-age episode that's, or in the Days of Creation episode that we'll be doing in the future because it kind of gets us into the weeds here. But I would say that what we have in the catechism is a this is the first time that that the magisterium articulated itself on this question in this way and consequently it has a lower level of authority than other teachings so i would say if you if you went to the to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith and said look i've studied genesis and i just i just don't think these i don't think the evidence supports this being symbolic i think that this is literal does that make me a bad catholic i think the the congregation for the doctrine of the faith would say no you're not understanding things the way we are but that doesn't mean that there's no room for your opinion in the Catholic family. And if that's the case with regard to how to take Genesis 1, it's even more the case with regard to the age of the earth. Because if these days are symbolic in Genesis 1, then we don't know how young or old the earth is. That's completely a matter for science at that point. It could be less than 6,000 years or, or vastly more. And so Genesis would not tell us the age of the earth on the understanding that the catechism articulates. And so obviously, if these days are taken as symbolic, there is room in the Catholic family for people who think the earth is young. All right. Uh, Detective Holmes on YouTube writes, I don't agree with Jimmy, but enjoyed the show. Thank you, Detective Holmes. Always happy to have people have different opinions on stuff. I'm not here to tell people what they need to believe. I'm just telling them what my analysis is, and hopefully they'll find it useful. Raul Goddard on Facebook writes, I've read that some propose the light for the days before the sun and moon was, and is, the same primordial light that we'll have in the New Jerusalem, as described in Revelation, from God himself. The first day was God making the universe able to comprehend him which then proposes as the earth spun on its axis before him, there'd be days and nights. 
What do you think? I'm aware of this view as well as similar ones, some of which were proposed in antiquity, that it was like maybe some kind of spiritual light that existed before the sun, which is essentially what it sounds like is being proposed here. It's possible, but it also involves something other than literal light being created and something other than a sun as a light source. So one way or another, it has to be acknowledged that there is something significant about the fact that light gets and the day-night cycle gets created on day one, but the sun isn't created until day four. I I think the right way to look at that or the best way to look at that is to say, oh, well, this is just a clue that this isn't chronology. This is structured by topic rather than than chronological sequence. But you can try to rescue the chronological sequence if you want by saying, oh, well, maybe it's a light source other than the sun or the sun didn't appear clearly in the sky or it's a spiritual light source or something like that. You can propose all these things. Personally, though, I think the simplest explanation is just to say this is a clue that this isn't meant to be chronological, but topical. Emma writes on Facebook, very interesting three-parter. I couldn't quite get used to Dr. Snelling's Australian accent, so I zoned out a little during those bits and didn't hear much of it. Luckily, Jimmy summarized what he said after those parts, so I got the gist. Thank you, Emma. And I do that deliberately whenever we have an audio quote in case there's an accent or a sound issue or something that makes it difficult to understand. I always try to, and even if, even if there's not, I tend to try to just summarize the key points so that the audience knows what will be important going forward. Paul Leone writes on YouTube, These three-part episodes are a good idea. Really lets you dig deep into the topics. Thank you. I'm kind of of two minds about them. On the one hand, it's easier on me because it means I don't have to research a whole new topic this week. Um, And some topics are just so complex that... It it would be really hard to compress down the discussion into single episodes. On the other hand, I also appreciate that it's nice to have everything contained in a single one part package so you don't have to wait till next week to get closure. I think going forward, it's it'll be a mix of these things. I don't know that we're going to have three parts very often. I I'll try to keep it to two parters, but I also want a lot of one parters in the mix. Bernard Fisher writes on YouTube, if the speed of light is infinite when directed towards the Earth, then GPS wouldn't work as it's based on the time delay between transmission on the satellite and reception on Earth. As a bonus, GPS transmissions exhibit relativistic distortions in time, as predicted by Einstein. Yes, that's quite true. GPS clocks in orbit have to be, there have to be adjustments made for the effects of relativity. So they do, in addition, provide evidence for the theory of relativity, as I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. But you're right, they do provide evidence for the speed of light being what we think it to be, and not different depending on whether it's pointed at Earth. Because the radio waves that are coming down from the GPS satellite system are a kind of light. I mean, radio wave is on the ele- radio waves are on the electromagnetic spectrum, just like visible light. So they travel at the speed of light, and we have to know the speed that they're traveling toward Earth in order for the GPS calculations to even work. So this is indeed a strike against the theory that was proposed by some not all, but by some young Earth creationists to explain the problem of distant starlight. 
And then Brandon Dar writes on YouTube, love the ending. That song has been stuck in my head for the past two weeks. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to end the three-part series with D is for Dinosaur just because it's such a cool song and because I wanted to do it as a gesture of friendship for everyone who's a young Earth supporter. I wanted to end on a, on a positive note. And uh, yes, it is a very catchy song, but don't worry, stick around till the end of this episode and you'll have another very catchy song you can hum for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, the week we're recording, we're actually recording this in October, but James Randi, a magician, often called the Amazing Randi, and also a uh, debunker of of paranormal claims and psychics, has passed on at the age of 92. And in keeping with the principle of don't speak ill of the dead, at least right when you're reporting their death, I won't speak ill of, of James Randi today. Uh, I'm sure he will come up in future episodes. And he was, uh, it's fair to say, a very colorful character. One of his wishes a number of years ago uh, that Annie Jacobson reports in her book Phenomenon, I think she interviewed him personally, but at least she, she quotes him as saying that one of his wishes for when he, for when he dies is to have his, have his body cremated and his ashes blown into the face of spoon-bending psychic Yuri Geller. <laughs> So we'll have we'll have to see if Yuri is up for that now that he's passed. <laughs> and uh, another headline? Yes. So I want to thank Darren McNamara of Adelaide in South Australia, who sent us a link to an animation that has been made of Somerton Man, who we talked about in episode 73. For people who may not remember, Somerton Man was an individual who died mysteriously in South Australia and during the Cold War and very under very mysterious circumstances may very well have been a spy. Who he was is a continuing mystery people are still trying to solve. Unfortunately, until recently, we've only had photos of him that were taken after his death or like of his body cast or things. But some special effects people use those photographs to create computer animation of what he would look like and things like that. So if you want to see uh, modern animation of Somerton Man. Uh, check out the link. Excellent. So as we start to wrap things up, I want to ask for you, the listener, what are your theories? We want to hear your feedback on your theories about curses. What do you have to, to say about it? What do you think of our discussion today? You can uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we're going to be talking about the famous 1973 Pascagoula UFO abduction of Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. It's considered one of the best documented abduction accounts that is available. All right. Uh, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us to continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.
My name is John Wellington Wells. I'm a dealer in magic and spells. In blessings and curses and devil-filled purses. In prophecies, witches and bells. If you want a proud photo to make tracks. If you'd melt a rich uncle in wax. You've got to look in on the resident gin number 70 Simmeriacs. We have a first-class assortment of magic. And for raising a posthumous shade. With the fits that are comic or tragic. There's no cheaper house in the trade. Love filter with quantities of it. And for knowledge, if anyone burns. We're keeping a very small profit. A profit who brings us unbounded returns. For he can prophesy with the wink of his eye. People security into fortuity. Sum up your history. Clear up a mystery. Humor proclivity. For the nativity. For the nativity. He has answers oracular. Bogey spectacular. Tetrapods tragical. Mirrors so magical. Facts astronomical. Solemn or comical. And if you want it, he makes a reduction on taking a quantity. Oh! If anyone anything lacks, he'll find it already in stacks. If he'll only look in on the resident gin number 70 Simmeriacs. He can raise your hosts of ghosts And that without reflectors And creepy things with wings And gaunt and grisly specters He can fill you crowds of shrouds And horrify you vastly He can wreck your brains with chains With shiverings grim and ghastly then if humanity changes organity with an urbanity full of satanity, vexes humanity with an inanity, fatal to vanity, driving your foes to the verge of insanity. Barring tautology, in demonology, electrobiology, mystic nosology, spirit philology, high-class astrology, such as his knowledge, isn't the man to require an apology. Oh! My name is John Wellington Wells. I'm a dealer in magic and spells, in blessings and curses and ever-filled purses, in prophecies, witches and knells. And if anyone anything lacks, you'll find it already in stacks. If you'll only look in on the resident gin number 70, Simmeriacs. 